I thought that was such a beautiful expression of our values to share that message, right? That access is love, that disability justice is love, that solidarity is a form of love, and also, what are ways we should show up for others? This is Healing Justice, conversations at the intersection of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and I'm so excited to share with you today's episode with Alice Wong. Alice Wong is a disability activist, a media maker, and a consultant based in San Francisco. And she is the founder and director of the Disability Visibility Project, or DVP, which is an online community dedicated to sharing, creating, and amplifying disability media and culture created in 2014. We are huge fans of the Disability Visibility Podcast, so highly recommend that you look it up in whatever platform you're listening right now and subscribe. And also, big shout out to Alice for two of the other projects she runs that have impacted us and our community. One of them is hashtag CryptTheVote, which is a nonpartisan online movement encouraging political participation of disabled people. And Access is Love, which started at the beginning of this year in 2019 with co-partners Mia Mingus and Sandy Ho, which is a campaign that aims to help build a world where accessibility is understood as an act of love instead of a burden or an afterthought. I love this conversation with Alice because, first of all, recording with a fellow podcaster is super fun. She had her backup recording ready, she had her mic ready, and it's so easy and quick to sort of do the tech logistics that we normally spend a lot of time setting up uh, with with folks new to podcasting, which is a great joy, um, but it's also fun to just be able to jump into action together. Um, And I so appreciated Alice's Um, patience and generosity in accompanying me and us in this process that we've been in around making Healing Justice podcast more accessible. You'll hear us talk about how our transcript backlog is finally going to get up to date and launch on October 1st, which we're really excited about. And so to stay in the loop about that, go to healingjustice.org and enter your email address so that you'll get an email alert when all of the back transcripts go live. We thank you for your patience as we've been getting that work together and we're so excited to share it with you. There's also some really great moments where we get to learn about Alice's history and work and ways she's creating more opportunities for disabled voices to be centered in media. Um, And also at the end of the conversation, she kind of turns the tables on me and uh, pulls out some master Jedi interview moves. So That's enough introduction. Let's jump in and hear the conversation with Alice Wong of Disability Visibility Project. Good morning, Alice. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kate. I'm thrilled. I'm so glad you're here. I'm a huge fan of your podcast, Disability Visibility, and we have all been listening to it internally as a team as we've been going through our own sort of like orientation of where we fit Mm -hmm. in the landscape of podcasters and also our own work around accessibility. We've been using your episode pages like as a model of a really great way to put shows up on a website. So I have been such a fan. Oh my goodness. I can't believe that. You know, that's that's so gratifying to hear because I think sometimes as podcasters, it feels like sometimes 
a lovely effort. Like you just create these episodes, did you release them out to the drug goal and you know, mm-hmm. you don't really always get the feedback. You know, you get the dumper, the metrics, oh, like, these many people downloaded it. But does it really tell the story of, like, if people are really valuing it? Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear more from you, Alice, about, like, how did you get into the work that you do now, and particularly your focus around media? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, what what compelled you into this work and why you use media as, like, a medium to move your work forward? Thanks for asking. You know, I guess, like, a lot of disabled people, like, I was just this accidental activist, just being someone who's marginalized in society. You really often don't have any choice. You have to fight for yourself and fight for others. So, you know, I was born with a disability. So that's always been my experience. And, uh, you know, I grew up should have not seen images or content or just anything that looked like me. And, you know, that was normal. You know, I never expected that. Like, whenever I saw these, like, after-school specials or very special episodes or, like, you know, like, a single, like, disabled character or something, I got uncomfortable. Like, I, you know, it made me self-conscious because of my own you know, internalized ableism, and I think that was the culture I grew up in, because it was just so typical to not expect people like me. So, you know, I got older and more politicized, and, you know, really started to understand disability as, you know, a political identity, and definitely a socio-cultural identity, that, you know, disability is more than just about what's happening in your body mind and you know that's when I kind of started looking and I think I kept looking and finding and just you know really treasuring you know authentic stories and media that's you know still a bit of a rarity and I think like there have been people fighting for this for decades you know I think I just kind of came along in the last five or six years really kind of thinking much more deliberately about that and that in relation to kind of learning to tell my own story. Like, what am I offering? What's my story out there? And I think one of the first times I really told my own story was this call for videos by the White House during the Obama administration. There was an Asian American Pacific initiative, and they had this call for videos. So, like, what's your Asian American story? And, you know, I never had, like, I wasn't really online then. I was just really... I didn't identify as an activist then, but I thought, oh, what if I did a video about disability identity and Asian American identity? You know, like, that's something that's kind of unique. You know, like, I don't really see that often. So, you know, I made a video. Like, I just really, like, felt weird to, like, put it online and put it in public. And, you know, they posted on their website. And that was really kind of the beginning in terms of being very public about myself, which I think... It's easy to talk about telling your own story, but, you know, it's very vulnerable. And I think that was something that took me time to really not only find my own voice, but to also be more comfortable about sharing what I want to share. So, I think I started to tell my own story more often. I got a more comfortable writing essays and blog posts, things like that. And I started a disability visibility project really out of a... I think a void is kind of 
towards missing in terms of history, about disability history. So I started it about 2014, about five years ago, and this was at the lead up to the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was in July 2015. And there's ADA celebrations because it's such a landmark anniversary, and I thought, oh, disability history that's out there is very limited, you know, I, I was like, where are the histories of people now, like this moment? Because I think, do we think about history as something that evolved a long time ago? Do we also think about history as very often it's told by other people through their filter? It's not really told in our own words. So, you know, it's really out of my own frustration about what I wanted to see for us and by us, the DVP started really as an oral history project that was a community's partnership with StoryCorps. StoryCorps is a national oral history nonprofit, and it was supposed to be a one-year project that I thought, no, I'll do a few interviews and use my Facebook page and just, you know, Twitter and just, you know, stir up some shit and, you know, see where it goes, right? Like, I don't know. And it really just blew up. I mean, as of 2019, we have 140 oral histories recorded. Wow. And the thing about StoryCorps is that participants have the option of having an archive at a library of Congress. Mm -hmm. So knowing that there is this little body of oral histories Mm -hmm. by disabled people, in this very recent 21st century, it's going to be there forever and ever. And that, to me, feels really good. And I think that we definitely expanded into other forms of media, with a website and a Twitter chat and a podcast. Yeah, it all started with the idea that we could create our own history. And, you know, we should think about it that way. We should think about every conversation as a cultural and a historic event. And I think that we gotta put that value because, you know, even I myself sometimes think, like, I'm not that interesting. I'd rather talk to other people that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think that sometimes we have to give ourselves permission to, to say, oh, wow, like, I may not be a big name or whatever, but my life, my story is still interesting, you know, it still has value. Mm-hmm. So. I'm thinking about so many things as you're sharing, and I think, um, you know, one question I have for you is just what your response has been, both, like, to the disability visibility project and and the podcast aspect of it. Like, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of resonance and powerful stories in response to people hearing your work. Can you share a little bit about that? And also, have you gotten any, like, haters, people trolling you? Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely been a mix. I mean, for the most part, it's been pretty positive. It wouldn't be what it is today if it wasn't supported by the disability community. You know, the fact that it's still around just shows there's a hunger, there's a space. And I want to really emphasize I'm just one project out of many other kind of other people that are doing amazing things. So as the DVP has grown, I'm also really mindful to make sure that, you know, I amplify other folks 
and share the platform with other people because you know that to me is what it's all about and I actually prefer doing these things kind of behind the scenes sharing the bike, passing the bike you know all of those things because I feel like there's just so much out there that really still hasn't been tapped yet I'm basically a fan I just really love the culture and the people and I really want more people to get that excitement and that feeling. Teachers tell me that they've put my podcast on their syllabus which to me is like whoa like I can't believe this is on a syllabus but like hey that's pretty awesome. Last year I self-published a small anthology of essays called Resistance and Hope and there are 16 essays by disabled people on the relationship between resistance, activism, and hope. Mm. And that to me was my own personal response to this current administration. And, you know, like so many people, I really was scared. And, you know, I knew exactly what was going to happen mm-hmm. and the harm that would happen to, mm-hmm. you know, so many communities. But, at the same time, so many of our communities, we've always been resisting, right? Like, the resistance did not happen in 2016. <laughs> it's, it's been part of this very long continuum. And marginalized folks, multiply marginalized folks, have so much wisdom about that. That's something that I really wanted to create, and I didn't want to wait, you know, for a book publisher. I thought, hey, the devil is another form of media making. I thought, oh, I'll just try doing an e-book. You know, it's really fun, and people have told me, you know, your anthology, we put it in our reading group. It's just like, the fact that you put media out there, and you don't really know, like, who's listening, who's reading. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's out there, you know that there will be ripple effects over time. Yeah. It feels really good. Every once in a while, I get a reminder, like, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And how has it been for you? I know right before we started, we were um, talking about the conversation you got to have yesterday about your voice and mm-hmm. about um, like being in this industry and, and podcasting specifically and having sort of like an audibly disabled voice. Um, and then also your other intersectional identities, like as an Asian American person, et cetera. Like how, how have those multiple identities sort of impacted you? What's been your experience? Yeah, I feel like you get this just back to like, you know, representation of what's out there, you know, I feel like there's such a long way to go in representation of so many diverse groups. For example, popular culture or television, characters of books or TV. You know, people can handle a white disabled character, but to have a queer disabled person of color, like, that's just, like, just about too much. Mm. But that's the most reality for a lot of people I know. Mm-hmm. That it that to me is where there's a there's so much room, and I think that's you know there's so many people that exist that are so brilliant that I'm like three days of really 
do a better job of highlighting the folks in our community that that's a responsibility and a failure within the community, but there's also a responsibility to, you know, by those that it's outside of the community. You know, those with privilege, those with power, right? Especially with, like, for example, the podcasting world or the radio world, there's all these conversations about diversity of media. <laughs> and I just roll my eyes. You know, because it's so much lip service, right? Mm. You know, are people really sharing what they have, not really, right? Mm. They, they really give a shit about diversity. Mm. They would hire people, they would stay out of their way, mm. right? They would not take up space when it doesn't belong to them. They would make difficult decisions, right? And it does kind of a two-way street where we uh, within our own communities mm-hmm. have work to do, but also the responsibility lies with these outside structures, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of infrastructure that we're all part of, whether we like it or not. I mean, we're all part of this capitalist industrial complex, and I think part of the change is, you know, within our communities, but also changing the way we do our work, changing the way we think about work, and really creating new pathways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's really difficult. I think that's part of the reason why, you know, I ventured into this podcasting world because I thought, let me just dip my toes and just, you know, put my voice out there. Because, you know, I listened to NPR for all these years and I rarely hear disabled voices or, you know, voices that sound different from this very smooth, very <laughs> polished, like you know, old, very... Old white people voice. White, kind of, male-centric, let's face it, voices, right? And I think that's where, you know, we think about authority, you know, somebody with gravitas. Mm-hmm. Those are the voices, right? Because it's really ideas of patriarchy or ideas of, like, you know, uh, white supremacy, you know, so then I think there's a lot of ableism too. Mm-hmm. Or voices like mine, or somebody maybe with uh, a speech disability, somebody with a deaf accent, somebody with, you know, just a different kind of way of speaking. You know, it takes more work for the listener. And I think that's, that's actually a really good thing. Mm. You know, for me, us as podcasters, this is an interesting kind of internal dynamic, right? Like, how much do we edit? Mm-hmm. You know, the choices we make mm-hmm. is very much shaped in our ideas of, you know, we hear this term all the time, like, get good tape, right? Like, good tape, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this idea of, like, you should have this ideal sound. And I think that's. That should be interrogated. I think mm-hmm. disabled and not disabled folks really need to kind of unpack all the, mm-hmm. the racism and classism mm-hmm. and sexism that's behind this idea of what sounds good. I think there's a, there's a whole lot to be talked about like that. Yeah, yeah. 
So one of the things we've done in our volunteer access team over the past eight months is um, in working transcription is like coming up with our own guidelines around cultural competency and recognizing the stories that people's voices tell. So an example is we have people on the show who speak English as a second language. Mm. When you talk about the listener working mm. a little harder, like mm. if you if English is your first language and you're listening to like a thick Ecuadorian accent speaking mm. English, there is work happening to sort of reach to be like, oh, that person said that in mm. a way that I wouldn't have been used to. Mm. Like, what did they mean? Right. And I think through our transcription process, we really want to name some of that because mm -hmm. the story that that voice is telling the listener has meaning behind it, like auditory information that you're getting, mm -hmm. even if it's not what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And we've wondered about like, oh, where do we sort of note a pause where someone's searching mm -hmm. for a word? Mm -hmm. because that tells us something of meaning versus always also not wanting to put in the transcript like they don't know what they're doing like being like they mm -hmm. pause again you know like mm -hmm. it's like I think about us doing the transcript of this interview mm -hmm. how would you want your voice described would you want it sure. described do you know what I mean this is so interesting because I think this is an artistic interpretation right I think this is kind of a very creative endeavor where you know, those of us who have the, or in the role of fighting these things, we have a lot of power at our disposal, right? Because we're framing the narrative. And I think there's more of a, maybe a whooshing sound, like there's, maybe there's some sort of, like, a voice that's beating through a, you know, some sort of machine that, you know, breathes air, so like, yeah, there's some sort of like pauses. You know, I'm kind of twisting myself that I don't have like a, a natural rhythm, I guess. I guess it's like a, you know, it starts and stops. So I think that's kind of the way I would describe myself. But I guess that's neither negative or positive, it's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to give a shout out to my transcriber. My transcriptionist is a uh, Cheryl Green, and she's also a podcaster and a disabled person, and she also audio produces some of my episodes. Yeah. And what she'll do in our transcripts, she just brackets, and when we have a musical interlude, she just drives the music, which is great. She likes, she likes to say, like, hip-hop beat, you know, like, there's just enough to give the, as a reader a sense of what's happening, and sometimes you know, for example, if I have somebody on the podcast that stutters, mm -hmm. she will type out the way the person stutters to really give the the reader a flavor, a sense. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a, you know, just enough to give the reader a sense of what's happening. So, yeah. this is a really exciting terrain. It's really creative. And I feel like this is also another artistic practice. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of this of the stuttering being made explicit in the transcript too, because it's really like the moments where we've written it exactly as we've heard it and thought, oh, is this like disrespectful? Like how over the top we're sort of actually literally transcribing this person, like searching for a word or pronouncing it differently or whatever. And then it's like, well, why? Why do we feel like that is like dehumanizing them? It's because it's because of ableism that we feel like that. I mean, that's really what they said. Like, why do we 
feel weird about it. Why do we feel weird about it? Yeah, that's and us. Like, yeah, it's on us. And I think we all have a lot to unpack. What I like about podcasting is that, you know, let's embrace the messy. You know, you've got to give people that space to, like, to feel out their answer. And I think that's that journey during that conversation is just as important as what you get as the final answer. I think that brings authenticity to... There are probably going to be times where there's tension, right? Yeah, maybe there's some discomfort between you and your guests that you were not expecting. And are we going to be honest enough to put that out there. Even if it reflects badly on us, it's a lot of responsibility because they're trusting you with their story. And they're taking the time. You know, I'm just so thankful for that. So I feel like it's my duty to frame them in the way that they want to be framed. Mm -hmm. Make sure the conversation is about them, not about me. You know, I'm just going to to be the guide and just kind of to really have to have them be in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And that to me is what's important to me. Mm-hmm. What's your philosophy? I've been thinking about when you said embrace the messy and you talked about tension because like most of our listeners and our guests are in sort of a super like social justice mm-hmm. activist mm-hmm. culture. Which one brings a lot of the considerations you talked about before around like um, language access. <laughs> There's so much jargon in this space. And one of the reasons why we're using podcasting as a medium is to get each other to speak in public about our really personal experiences around mm-hmm. this work is actually like a cultural balm for the activist culture of like that's been formed really out of necessity of like needing to have messaging super perfect and on point, like activist way of speaking, right? That mm-hmm. like when you're giving a sound bite at your direct action is super appropriate um, mm-hmm. and necessary, but is a skill set that doesn't always let us be mm-hmm. like actually like human together. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so I feel like one of the biggest things that we've had to do is really accompany people who come on the show, who, who sort of speak from the heart and then later are like, mm, I don't know if I should have told that story or how will that be heard across mm-hmm. multiple communities, which is a really important awareness. And also to just like give people permission to just speak from their own experience and be like, mm-hmm. you can just do that right now. You don't have to like represent every community you work with right now. You can just represent yourself for an hour Mm -hmm. like and letting ourselves be visible while we're learning which I feel like is what you're saying about Mm -hmm. allowing the tension to be heard like Mm -hmm. even when you have the power to edit yourself but allowing ourselves to yeah to learn and to be like visibly imperfect in public I think is a really for Mm -hmm. me it's been a really healing practice and I've seen our guests go through Mm -hmm. healing around it of kind Mm -hmm. of sharing of themselves in a way where they think they could be torn apart and mm-hmm. actually receiving a ton of resonance instead mm-hmm. of people who are like, that's how I feel too. And like, nobody ever says it, you know? Yeah, I feel like there's so much judgment, I think, that's out there. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about it, there's a social justice world. Like, you know, within any community, there's like 
and orthodoxy, right? Like, if you use the, the wrong terminology, that somehow you're canceled. So what if what are we missing if we're just kind of like, like you're trash and just mm-hmm. losing the substance of what that person's trying to say, mm-hmm. you know, rather than trying to, to break the bed. And I think that's where a lot of people just feel alienated and they feel burnt out and uh, mm-hmm. they don't want to be involved. They don't want to be engaged because it hurts too much. Making people feel comfortable. I think it's a key of any good host or producer. Making yeah. you know, people feel confident. Mm-hmm. And I, I say this a lot to a lot of my guests. I'm like, you know, before we start, like, don't feel like you have to have a perfect answer that immediately. This will be edited later on. That, you know, take your time. And I think making uh, people just feel at ease that there's no rush. There's no pressure, there's no judgment from me, and I never want to be, put something that you later regret or might make you feel uncomfortable. So I think that's also kind of the responsibility that we have. You have as much agency to tell your story as I do, and I really want to give people that confidence. Hey everybody, this is Kate. I'm just dropping in to remind you again how incredible the work has been of the remote global digital access team. Um, volunteers from all around the world that have been working really, really hard since February of this year to produce all of the transcripts of all the back episodes of this show, which now is exceeding 107 or so. Um, This has been a massive undertaking and is creating the biggest um, free accessible online resource of um, information in this current historical moment around healing justice work and ways that people are incorporating healing and um, kind of our whole lives into the way we're doing organizing and social change. This library is going to have over 1600 pages and it's launching in just one week if you're listening to this episode when it comes out it's launching on october 1st 2019 on our website at healingjustice.org maybe you're listening to this after october 1st and it's already there for you if you're listening to it before you can go to healingjustice.org enter your email address so that you'll get an email alert when all of the transcripts go live We share really interesting extra resources to our email list all the time about the episode topics we're working on and um, additional thoughts from guests. And so please join us on that email list at healingjustice.org. And big, big love going out to Erica Wolf, our access team coordinator who has been uh, volunteering their time relentlessly since December of 2018. Um, and a huge thank you to the ultra amazing volunteers who have done, you know, some of them one transcription and learned all those new skills. And some of them have touched more than 25 different transcripts, extra shout out to our editors who do like the final round editing and have made this resource accessible. And so 
So much gratitude to y'all. So excited to share with everybody this long overdue resource. And again, you can find it at healingjustice.org. Okay, let's go back to Alice. The amount of work that goes on behind the scenes that's not just technical and do things like making mm-hmm. sure to, you know, raise money to be able to get transcripts and like all of these access considerations and also all of the relational work. Like mm-hmm. I think sometimes people hear our episodes and think, Oh, that sounds really fun. Like you just like set up a mic and hit record and spend an hour talking and then put it out there and you get all this visibility. You get these right? Like and that actually the amount of hours that goes into what you're talking about, that level of care in that back and forth with guests and like um, is actually the majority of the work. And it's super fulfilling, but it's it's not seen. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that some people have this expectation that, uh, you know, these episodes just, you know, like, poof, like <laughs> happen overnight, like, you know, like you said, in terms of building relationships. With any case of my guests, you know, I do a lot of homework ahead of time. You know, I get their pronouns right, and I try to give them a heads up, like, you know, what do you want to talk about? Here are, you know, here are some things I'm interested in, but, you know, what are you wanting to talk about? And I think having that collaborative approach mm. is important because I don't want to just, you know, enforce what I want to talk about. There's a lot of care before and after the interview. I feel like that's, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of that labor is invisible, like you said. I notice a lot of podcasters still don't put transcripts. You know, I was very intentional from the very beginning. I wanted to do a podcast for a long time, but I really kind of took my time. Mm. You know, to learn about the process, to learn about what you did, and just all the technical stuff. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, to be real, I mean, also to save up money to the transcripts. And I really wanted to start off that way versus doing them retroactively. So, mm. you know, I think it was worth the wait. And I try to be very sustainable in the way that I podcast. You know, I'd love to hear your take with you and your uh, colleagues because I used to do one once a week. Mm-hmm. And that was way too much. I was like, wait a minute, this is like... <laughs> and I thought, I was under that weird impression, like, oh, you know, real podcasters are, like, constantly producing. But I'm like, hey, this is my podcast. I can do whatever I want. So now it's twice a month, and that's pretty manageable for me. And what I do, which is very kind of atypical, I think, is that I do my interviews way in advance. So, like, mm. if I do an interview this month, their episode won't be out for several months. I like to build a cushion so that I don't feel stressed. You know, I don't feel like I have to be constantly working on the podcast all the time. Yeah. Even though, even though I think about it a lot. I think there's a lot of emotional labor, but in terms of just a physical labor, I like to plan my season out way in advance. And I think that to me is what works for me. And I think that's one form of access that I've created for myself. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, I know what you mean about the cushion. Like, it's like, I, but for me, it's mostly fantasies about the cushion. Like, it's like, if we ever get just a tiny little bit ahead, the breathing room that that creates is so amazing. Yeah. I think twice a month is fantastic. I mean, we're putting something out now once a week. The first year we put out twice a week, which is a history we should never return to. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. 
That yeah. is amazing. It was, it was doing too much. And I think there was two reasons. One is that there's a lot of stuff, I'm sure when you were doing your mm-hmm. research, they talk about like building your audience at the beginning and connecting with people. And I think this is actually one of the reasons why some shows that have really incredible content, but nobody's hearing them. Some of them, I think it's because there's so much space between. It's mm-hmm. just kind of like, then there's not a lot of effort put into mm-hmm. connecting with listeners, bringing in audience. I want to zoom out to talk more about your life, but as long as we're talking about the nitty gritty for a second. Sure, um, why not? I really appreciate you talking about waiting to save the money until you could do the transcripts live because we have the opposite story. I mean, we started also with no money to even do the recordings, much less transcripts as well, and have been in a literally year-long process to catch up to our own content with transcription. And... Part of why we're having this conversation now as podcasters is that on October 1st, we'll be releasing our entire backlog of transcripts, which at this point is over like 1,600 pages. And it's incredible and amazing. And it's really late. It means that people who have needed to access our podcast via transcript have not been able to access it for like almost two years. Mm-hmm. And it's also meant that the volume of work had been so overwhelming that it took us a whole year with a giant team of volunteers to work through it together. And so I'm appreciating the foresight and the wisdom that you had to actually like really front load that from the beginning because that's definitely a piece of work that surprised me. Like it was just something that I had never taken on in full before. Yeah, and I think as somebody who's dated access, it's always kind of disappointing as a user or consumer of what you something's released. And then they're like, oh, it doesn't have captions, or the captions will come later, or, yeah. you know, some other aspect. And I think that's where, for those who are listening who are thinking about creating media, is that, that it is really, it's going to be a win-win if you build it in at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But even those who don't, I think the fact that you're going back, you're taking the time, you're making the efforts, that's still really better than nothing. And there's still so many podcasters out there that just either don't care or they just don't have the bees. And I think that's understandable as well. I think there's a lot of different situations, but there's absolutely no excuse for the ones that they have, you know, advertising and, mm. you know, they're on major networks and platforms. I mean, like those super professional ones, mm-hmm. you know, a, a lot of them still don't have trust groups. And that's... Mm-hmm. You know, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. When you were working on, like, the transcript and access setup for your show, is mm-hmm. other than just the most obvious access need around podcasting is, like, for people who, for various reasons, whether it has to do with hearing or processing mm-hmm. or English as a second language or a million other things need to see it written, other than that fundamental need, have there been other needs you've been thinking about for yourself and for others, like in the way the transcript gets done or the way you do recording or how have you thought about access in other ways? So I started my podcast in 2017 and I, you know, because I only do twice a month now, I have about 60 episodes and if I had a magic wand with a bottomless budget, I would love to go back and in addition to transcripts, I have transcripts right now and I also have image descriptions so sometimes you know I like to do photos and you know images like let's say somebody has a book they have the book cover I put in the image descriptions as the captions under the image because I want to make that very explicit so that it's not just in alt text 
it, but people can see it. And this is something that I just personally feel important. It's important. <laughs> I think one thing I've learned from people with intellectual and learning disabilities is the importance of play language. If I had the time and the money, I would love to hire somebody with a disability community that uses play language and that knows how to write a play language and I would love to hire that person or a team of people to write like a paragraph summary. I already have these very brief kind of summaries but they don't really say what happens in the episode. You know, you get this little intro about what the episode's about, but there is no kind of a brief summary of what is discussed during the entire episode. So, if I had a magic wand and a pot of money, I would love to retroactively publish, like, either a bullet points or whatever play language works best, but, like, a, a very brief snapshot in play language for each episode with each kind of podcast page. Mm-hmm. That'd be amazing. Yeah, I think that'd be really exciting, and I don't think I've ever seen a podcaster do that. I've mm-hmm. seen, like, various, you know, organizations where they release, like, papers, like, you know, policy papers that do a pledge language, but, you know, I think the podcasting world should really, there's a lot of room for improvements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. I'm curious, too, one of the things we've been also working on is, like, trying to get our social media up to date in terms of the alt text and the image descriptions. And one of the questions that I've had that I've sort of been talking with other people on Instagram about is about using the alt text feature, which for people who don't know is, like, the feature that um, you can put an image description in and then a screen reader will pick it up and, like, dictate it. Why use alt text and also put the full description in the caption? Can you talk about why you prefer that approach? Yeah, I think it's partially because I think not everybody may have a screen reader. So, like, let's say, you know, there's a percentage of people that are going to use it. Yeah, that will definitely benefit from it. But also, I think there's something about the visibility of seeing these captions that really normalize it in terms of, like, these descriptions should be just part of the idea of what we think about as captions in mm-hmm. an Instagram post. I mean, the Instagram culture that is very normal to have, like, 30 hashtags. So why not let's throw in a paragraph or a few sentences describing the image. And I think, you know, Instagram is such a place that's so image-driven that, unlike Twitter, you know, there is a lot more room for description and rich, really rich descriptions. I think some of the you know, images and graphics I've seen are so beautiful that it's very difficult to condense it into a short description. So some of my, you know, my own posts, you know, I'm like, Especially if I have, like, two photos and, like, there's a graphic with a background. I'm like, this is a lot of detail. You know, you want to give somebody at least the basics, you know, the outline. Or so you don't want to, like, have to be, like, super accurate, but you don't have to... You don't want to be so broad that they're not getting kind of the same experience as a person who should see it. 
so that's what I liked about having these descriptions in the chapter so that visitor chapter expected. And that's how exciting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, it just normalizes. Oh, this mm-hmm. is something we think about all the time is access mm-hmm. needs in our community. It reminds me of like mm-hmm. cis people using their pronouns. It's like, yep, we're all going to use our pronouns all the time now, right? Like, so that folks who have a specific request or a specific need around it aren't, like, isolated and having to advocate for that. Yeah, I definitely learned a lot from folks about pronouns that, you know, I started leaving them in my email signatures. And I was like, that is such an easy thing to do. It's, like, not anything that's going to, like, take away from my experience. But, yeah, it just puts it out there and it doesn't create a burden on other people who have to ask. You know, I think that's the same thing with content notes. I feel like trigger warnings mm. and content notes, it doesn't take away from the content. Mm. You're just building in access for the reader. Mm-hmm. And that is not... I really hate those people who feel like they are a distraction or mm. that's about they're lowering the value of the content. I really feel like if we want all kinds of people to read it and not be harmed by it. It's all in our interest to build in these forms of access. Content notes is about something that, you know, especially being on Twitter, I've learned a lot in terms of to be very mindful of that. So I've learned a lot as well from other folks. Mm-hmm. For people listening who, like, have probably heard the term trigger warning or have seen like TW colon mm-hmm. on social media or in an article mm-hmm. or whatever. It's, it took me a while to realize that CN was the mm-hmm. same thing, like content mm-hmm. note. Yeah, that's been helpful for us to learn how to incorporate too. Like, hey, at minute 12, we're going to discuss XYZ. So feel free to fast forward to minute 15 if you don't want to hear mm-hmm. that part. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is just, you know, a way to be more inclusive and motivated. Mm-hmm. Like for some people, maybe they don't want, maybe it's not good for them to listen to this hour-long conversation on sexual assault, you know, like, yeah. you know, you don't want to put people through something that they don't have to go through, and that's yeah. okay, right? I think that's, that's our responsibility as media makers, that mm. while we have the freedom to do whatever we want, for the most part, we should still be respectful of other people who this may not be their cup of tea. That's, I think that's that's something that we should think about and care about and be mindful of. Mm-hmm. Something I like about it, too, is it's almost like building in a culture of also reminding ourselves that we can take care of ourselves. Because, like, there's definitely times I've heard a trigger warning or a content note, and I'm, I don't have, like, a preset decision in my mind, like, oh, I'm not going to consume any content mm-hmm. about sexual assault or whatever, but then... Because the note is there, it gives me, like, a moment of mindfulness around, like, oh, do I want to ingest this right now? Is this a good time for me to take in something mm-hmm. really hard? Mm-hmm. And um, to sometimes be like, hmm, not today. I think if it, things just blew through, like, I probably mm-hmm. would just be, like, just absorb it all and not mm-hmm. have that moment of consideration for my own mm-hmm. well-being, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think you don't need to be somebody who's been through trauma or has PTSD to benefit from content notes, right? I think just like what you just said, I think we kind of don't even realize the cumulative effect of what we, mm-hmm. you know, take it every day. There's a lot to process. 
did it go through the tool on us, you know, emotionally over time. So I think these things are just, you know, once they're kind of just part of your everyday kind of experience, it's just something that's doing almost a lot of people take it for granted, right? I think this is, this is really wonderful if everybody kind of, you know, practiced this and didn't think of it as an add-on, you know, or something that's, oh my god, I have to remember to do this, you know? If we just did this as, you know, part and parcel of our everyday practices, I think it's gonna be great for everyone. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people do don't podcast, I think, don't really appreciate the, the, the love and care it takes. Yeah. Well, I love that you just used the word love. I know you co-run this project called Access is Love. Mm-hmm. And it was a real inspiration to us when we first announced and started recruiting volunteers mm-hmm. for our transcription team. Mm-hmm. This is a very practical access commitment, and it's born from a place of love and inclusion mm-hmm. that this effort is important, and will you join us? And I would love to just hear about, like, what is mm-hmm. Access is Love? Why did y'all start that together? Yeah, I think this is, uh, it all started with Sandy and Mia. So Sandy, who would be a biggest are the co-partners in Access is Love. And Sandy is the organizer of the Disability and Intersectionality Conference. It happens every two years. And, you know, last year, being a big guest, who is a really well-known, I think, to person in restorative justice, uh, you know, disability justice, social justice. I mean, she's... She's basically a rock star, somebody that I learned so much from, personally. She gave a keynote at that summit, and I read her speech, because she posted on her blog, and there was a line that said, you know, access is a form of love. And that, to me, was just like, I think she just gave something that I always felt, but she put it really plainly out there. But this is pretty radical, I think, for a lot of people who think about access in very narrow terms. You know, most people are still fighting for disability rights. There's this idea that a law can provide access and justice. Well, we know it takes more than just the state, right? That's why we have reproductive justice. That's why we have commercial justice and environmental justice. So, you know, Bia's speech really was a centerpiece of this idea. And last year, we had the, the lucky chance to hang out in person. They came over to my house. We got together, we started talking. You know, we thought about what are some ways we can advance the ideas from Bia's speech. And we thought about, well, what are we Raise some swag, raise some t-shirts and, you know, stickers and things like that. And, like, just to share that message, right, that access is love, that disability justice is love, that solidarity is a form of love, and also, what are ways we can show up for others? You know, how do we show up for other people outside of the disability community? So, we thought about, oh, if we're 
directory subscribe to why don't we donate the proceeds to every two months to a different group. This will be launched in February and the BS idea for February and March was for the House of Gigi, which is the first national retreat for transgender, gender non-conforming people and deals for this major and you know, I thought that was such a beautiful expression of our values, but also the purpose is that people should share this message. They are doing that if they choose to buy a shirt or buy a book, all the proceeds will go to different groups. So that to me is a beautiful way of us kind of watching the walk, you know, it's like we should talk about solidarity all we want. But, you know, what we really sometimes people need, it really supports this actual material support, right? You can say all the words you want, but people also need money. And this is a brilliant way that's community-driven. And that to me is really exciting. Yeah, for people who are listening, we'll put the link to check out the Access is Love swag in our show notes in the episode description on whatever uh, platform you're listening. Yeah, buy some swag! (laughs) Well, I want to just close by asking you the question that you ask your guests, which is like, is there anything else that you want to talk about? Well, I just, uh, I feel like we had a great conversation. I really would love to hear more about the future of your podcast because mm. that's something that I grapple with all the time in terms of just you know with the understanding that you know some podcasts have a lifespan mm. you know and then how do how do you all stay grounded and you know keep it sustainable because you know those are things that I'm constantly trying to figure out on my own and I just love to hear kind of mm. what you all do to support yourselves mm. and what listeners you do mm. to support your work mm. thank you do you see what I did there? wow a true master Jedi Matrix Jedi Matrix you that's a really good question. Actually, we just were able to raise enough money to hire a producer and a digital organizer for the first time, which is what? really exciting. We're in like our first year of being able to like pay for any labor. And so that feels really exciting and is going to increase our sustainability dramatically. And one of the things we were talking about on our retreat to onboard those two new folks a couple weeks ago is that... Like another little tagline I use internally is is podcasting is a tactic. Our mission is not to podcast. I'm really interested in supporting people engaged in social justice work to have a fulfilling and nurtured and supported lifetime commitment to that work. Um, And so right now, like we're using a tactic that's working with podcasting to do that. And I'm super aware that this tactic won't always make sense. So I think some of the things that help us, I mean, one, maybe the major thing right now is these volunteers on this access team that we've built, like over a hundred people that have gotten trained with us and that volunteer their time. 
Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it's really outrageous, and I think it has helped us shorten the gap between our values, which is, mm. you know, to be fully accessible all the time, to have mm. everything be free, right? Like all of these values, mm. and then you have like capacity that doesn't, can't meet those values, mm. can't meet it with mm. no money and two people volunteering. Mm. You can't do all of these things. And and yet that's always the excuse for like no accessibility mm. is like that there's not capacity. Mm. And so we had sort of taken that question to our community and been like, how this gap is happening. Can you help us bridge it? Like mm. we need to bridge it. And people said yes to that. And that to me is like, that's a huge sustainability. And that's piece. a form of love. That is a form of love. Yeah. Yeah. The amount of detailed care that people mm. all over the world are like posting, mm. like, I think this person said this, but I don't know how to convey the accent or I don't know how to convey this. Mm. You know, this person introduced themselves in Chinese before they did it in English. Who knows mm. Chinese and can help me, you know, with the characters mm. here or like the care in those back and forths. And that, and the love in those back and forth has been really amazing. And so I think for me, like the main thing as an organizer that expresses love to me is like when people join you in the gap between kind of where you are and what your mission is and say like, here's how I can participate to move toward this together. That's like the most erotic being in the gap with you and saying, let's work towards this together. Yeah. That's hot. That is hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is hot. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes we lower our expectations because we're just afraid of being disappointed. But I think sometimes when you're honest about your needs mm-hmm. and just put it out there, you will be so surprised. People can merchandise quality. People can merchandise genuine intentions. Mm. And I think that to me is like the sign that there's something special, right? Mm. And that to me is like always something very humbling when I do have a part of that or when I witness that. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the big recommendations we'll make to also like Jedi flip this back to you is that folks make sure to subscribe to the Disability Visibility Podcast. We have learned so much from listening and it's just damn fun. Like your recent episode on comics. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Can you share also how folks can support that work? Do you have a Patreon for it, Alice? I do. I do. It's a patreon.com slash DVP. Very simple URL. Awesome. We'll put that link in the show notes too. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your time with us this morning. It's been my pleasure. Enormous gratitude to Alice Wong and all the work that she and so many others have done with the Disability Visibility Project and Access is Love, that work that's happening with Mia Mingus and Sandy Ho. We're going to put the links to all of these resources in the show notes, which is the description on whatever podcast platform you're listening. There'll be a description or kind of a details or a more button that describes the episode. You can find the link there to um, find all those extra resources, including the Access is Love merch, a link to the Disability Visibility Podcast, and more. We also invite you to become a supporter of ours on Patreon. 
We are now counting on around 20% of our budget being funded by the people who listen to this podcast and use it all the time. Um, And as we make increasing commitments that are deeply necessary, such as having weekly transcripts available at the same time that the podcast airs, actually getting them done ahead of time, that requires funding. It requires money for us to be able to pay a transcriptionist, to pay for the transcription software, even when we have volunteers doing it, um, and to make sure that with consistency, we can really offer these accessibility resources. We've also been working with folks to increase accessibility on our website and in our social media, which also takes time and takes resources. And so if you are able to, we'd be so grateful for you to join us on patreon.com slash healing justice. Any amount that you can give per month helps us be able to fund um, the full range of work that we're doing, which necessarily includes accessibility as part of our work. We'd love to hear what your reactions have been to this conversation, what you've learned, what you're taking away, what you would add. Find us on social media to weigh in. Our Instagram is at Healing Justice, Facebook, Healing Justice Podcast, and Twitter at HJ Podcast. Next week, we'll be coming at you with a a special kind of practice episode where we're really um, sharing what our practice has been around the access team and creating transcripts and really launching a deeper set of accessibility resources around the podcast. And so we hope you'll join us next week for that uh, unique kind of practice episode that's going to be hosted by some of our volunteers and an enormous gratitude, as usual, to our talented producer, Jale Akavan, our sound designer, Zach Meyer, and our uh, graphic artist, Josiah Warning. Thank you so much for being with us this week and every week, and we'll talk to you again soon.